Jesus is known not just for the statements he made, but for the questions he asked. Questions that challenge the religious and those who feel far from God. Questions that reveal his purpose and his plan. Questions that cut to the heart of our beliefs, our motives, and our identity. I wonder, how will you answer the questions Jesus asked? Well, hello, friends. If I haven't met you before, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King, and I'm so excited to be with you. I want to give a special welcome. If you're joining us online, we're so glad you're here. And if we're in the room today, we're glad that you're here. And I'm so expectant for the ways that God's already showed up and the ways that he's going to show up. So before we get started, I do want to ask for a little bit of audience participation. I know it gets old, but that's okay. Go with me. I want you to lean at, or I want you to look at your neighbor, and here's what I want you to tell them. I want you to tell them the drought is over. The Mariners are back in the playoffs. Yes. Yes. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. Amen. And just out of curiosity, is there anyone in here who just like does not care in the least? Okay, so security, these are the ones I was telling you about. If you can get them out of here, the rest of us would be very thankful for that. So we can get into the word of God. But hey, I, I don't know about you, but I love a good question. I love a good question. I've got like whole notes on my phone that are all devoted to just my favorite questions. I love asking questions when I preach because there's actually something that it asks of people. Here's one of my favorites. What if I preach the way that you listened? What if I preach the way that you listened? What if I leaned in when you leaned in and I leaned back when you leaned back? Well, what if I brought the same energy that you did today when you came into church? I wonder what kind of a sermon that would be like. You know, like I feel like we've gotten so comfortable. Here's a different way that we say it. I love that question because it makes people uncomfortable right off the start. And then they're like, man, well, I guess I have to listen now, no matter what he says. But the other way that you can say that, that we've talked about, is I feel like we've gotten too comfortable asking the question, how was worship this weekend? And we don't ask the question enough, how was my worship? Well, like, how did I do? Like, what did I bring? Like, like, what did I actually bring in? Did I have expectancy? Did I prepare? Did I actually bring faith into the room or did I just mail it in? You know, what if I preached the way that you listened? I wonder what kind of a sermon that would be. I love that question. Here's another one. This is a leadership question that I got from Chris Hodges and I just love it so much. It's so good. It's what's one thing that if it got better would make the biggest difference in your life? What's the one thing that if it got better would make the biggest difference in your life? I love that question. What's the one thing, because the Lord knows that I got plenty of things that need fixing in my life, but what's the one thing that if it got better would make the biggest difference in your life? And you can ask that question on any level. You can ask that with your marriage. You can ask that with your work. You can ask that with your soul. What's the one thing that if it got better would make the biggest difference in your life? It's a question that actually helps us sift through and see what's not just important, but what's most important. It helps us focus. I'll give you one last one. This is the question that I ask my friends, especially friends I haven't seen in a couple years. I'll always ask them, if I was caught up on all the important stuff in your life, what would you want to talk about today? Like, so if I already knew about the family and I already knew about the job and I already knew about all that stuff, like what, 
would you want to talk about today? What are you excited about? Like, what are you listening to? What are you learning? What are you thinking about? What are you fired up about? I want to hear about the crazy ideas that you've been kicking around in your brain that you don't want to tell anybody because you don't want accountability for it. I want to hear about how you've been waiting 21 years for the Mariners to get back to the playoffs. And on Friday night, you could barely sleep because you were too busy thinking about how excited your dad would have been if he could have seen it. I want to know what's on your brain. Friends, I don't know about you, but I don't want to spend the precious few minutes that we have together talking about the moments I missed. I want to spend my time talking about what you're excited about right now, because if it's important to you, it's important to me too. I wish there was a way that we could just cut through all the small talk and the pomp and circumstance and actually talk about what matters. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And friends, this is the power of a good question. It can redirect our conversations from what we felt obligated to talk about to what we actually want to talk about. Like, this is possible. Like, it can take a moment that was on autopilot and turn it into a moment of genuine connection with people and with God. Friends, a good question can cut through all the noise and help people to see more clearly who God created them to be. I wonder if you'll listen to one more question. Did you know that there is no future version of yourself that God loves any more than he loves you right here where you sit? So all that striving, all that trying to present yourself to God, you can just save it and you can just lean back because there's no future version of yourself that God loves any more than he loves you right here in this moment. Friends, I'm telling you, I'll take a good question over a good answer any day of the week because answers inform people, but good questions can transform people. Like we're actually invited to wrestle. We're invited to take on a new perspective. We're invited to go deeper. And that's why I'm so excited for the series. We're actually going to be looking at the questions that Jesus asked. And what I love about the questions that Jesus asked is the fact that he didn't actually ask them because he needed our help understanding something. He actually asked them because he knew that there was something that we needed to understand. There was something he wanted us to see. There was something he wanted us to wrestle with and understand on a deeper level so that we could see him more clearly. And we're calling the series The Red Letter Questions. And if you're new to church and you're wondering, what does that even mean? Let me tell you. First of all, we're so glad that you're here. But there's these Bibles that you can get where the words that Jesus spoke are printed in red. They're called red letter Bibles. And there's nothing too crazy about them. It's just a way for us to differentiate and to be able to see more clearly the words that Jesus spoke so that when we're reading a story, we know this isn't just another word. This is a word that came out of the mouth of Jesus. And as far as questions, these aren't just any other questions. These are the red letter questions. That means that these are the questions that Jesus asked. And if they're questions Jesus asked, maybe, just maybe, they're the questions we should ask too. So I'm excited to dive in with you. But before we get to the first question, I just want to take a moment and pray for us. So will you bow your heads? Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're the all-knowing, ever-present God. And when you came and took on bodily form, God, you actually asked questions, not because you didn't know, but because you knew that that was the way that we could wrestle to a greater understanding of who you are. God, we thank you that you're not just the God of answers, you're the God of good questions. God, we thank you that you are here in this moment, God, and you are inviting us deeper into your love. 
God, we thank you for your story. God, we thank you for involving us in it and using broken people like us to actually communicate and to display your perfect story to the world. God, we don't deserve it, but you are that good and you are that powerful and you are that in love with us that you would say, will you not just come along for the ride? Will you participate? So God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, God, the part that you're inviting us to play this week. And give us a humility and a boldness to say yes. We ask that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. I'm just going to read you the scripture on the front end. We're not going to follow along. Then we're going to go through and we're actually going to do verse by verse. And then it will be up on the screen. But for this first rendition, I just want you to receive this and just listen. So Matthew chapter 16 Starting in verse 13, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So Simon gets a new name because he has the boldness to actually declare what hadn't been declared to this point, that Jesus just isn't a person, he's actually the son of the living God. And so this week's question is who do you say I am? Jesus says, who do you say I am? And it's such a simple question, but it's such an important one, guys. I don't want us to miss this. This question got me thinking about this quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, what comes into your mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll give it to you again. The most important, or what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I read that and I'm like, what a crazy statement. He's saying that God is so powerful that what you think about him is actually the most important thing about you. Just what you think about him. And it's not because what you think is that important, but it's rather that what you think actually determines how you interact with God. And how you interact with God determines how you partner with God. And how you partner with God actually determines the trajectory of your life. And so he says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. He's saying who you think God is matters more than you know. Who you believe is on the other side of your prayers determines the prayers that you're going to pray. Like who you think is picking up the phone depends how you engage in a conversation. He says what you think about God matters more than you will ever know because it'll actually change the trajectory of your life. And I love this scripture because we see that Jesus is on a mission. He is captured and he is hoping and helping people see who he truly is. In verse 13, it says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is the, the name that he referred to himself most as while he was actually doing his ministry. And I love this question because Jesus starts general instead of specific. 
He doesn't start with the question, who do you say I am? He starts with the question, who do people say that I am? Which is by all accounts an easier question. Because a lot of times it's easier to talk about what the proverbial other, the proverbial them are saying about a thing as opposed to actually wrestling with and engaging with, hey, what am I actually believing in this moment? So Jesus gives them the easy question first. He asks, who do people say I am? And they reply to this and they say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say that you're Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. So according to the disciples, there's this whole group of people who believes that Jesus is a prophet. And for the record, this makes a lot of sense because a prophet is somebody who is set apart by God. A prophet is somebody who God uses to tell people what's going to happen before it actually happens. And a prophet is somebody who God uses to perform miracles and signs, which are all things that Jesus did. So they were just looking at what is Jesus doing. And once they actually saw what Jesus is doing, they said, well, he must be a prophet. But if you look deeper in scripture, that's not all that people were saying about Jesus. In John chapter three, there was this man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. So he acknowledges that there's some connection with God, but what he represents is this whole group of people who have been following Jesus around because of his teaching ministry. Scripture said they were amazed at his teachings because he taught as somebody with authority, not like the teachers of the law. So they said, clearly this man is teaching. He's got this teaching ministry. Therefore, they said he was a teacher. And I'll tell you one more. In Luke 15, we're talking about the Pharisees now. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, because that's what religious people do is they mutter under their breath. And they said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man welcome sinners and eats with them. So when the Pharisees looked at Jesus, they aren't as interested about what Jesus is doing and they're more interested in who he's doing it with. And so instead of actually giving a name or a title based on what Jesus did, they gave him a title based on who he chose to associate with. They said he was a friend of sinners, which is not a compliment, even though it's the best news for people like you and me. So, so you do some digging and it says that people said that he was a prophet and people said that he was a priest and people said he was a carpenter and then people said he was a teacher and people said he was a friend of sinners. But then Jesus flips the question and says, well, what about you? And I almost called this message, what about you? Because it's so easy to talk about what other people think, but what about you? It's so easy to talk about what other people are doing in the world or not doing, but what about you? What are you doing? What are you saying? What do you believe is true of me? He says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon answers. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus replies and said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You know, I'll be honest with you, friends. I spent way too much time looking at the news this week. I know I shouldn't have done it, but I did it anyway. I was looking at pictures of Hurricane Ian, and I was looking at pictures of Ukraine, and 
And last night I read this story about 130 people who were trampled at a soccer riot in Indonesia. And as I took it all in, I started getting stressed. And then I knew I shouldn't be getting stressed because it wasn't something that was inside of my control, so I started fe feeling bad about getting stressed. And the more I felt bad about getting stressed, it just stressed me out even more because that's what happens when you feel bad. It's this self-fulfilling prophecy and it's just this downward spiral. So I had shame and I had stress, but in a moment of clarity, I remember looking up and I remember just looking at these pictures of devastation and brokenness and loss and thinking, God, we need more than a good teacher right now. I remember saying, like, we need more than good morals. Friends, we need more than good theology. We need more than a friend. We need somebody who can help. We need somebody who can do something with this mess that we've made. Jesus said, what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon says, I know this might sound crazy. Imagine he would just feel like it would take all the courage just to, just to bring this to the table. But he says, I say you're the Messiah. So I say that you're the son of God. He says, I say that you're the promised one. I say that you're the Alpha and Omega. I say that you're the beginning and the end. I say that you're the propitiation of sins. And I'll be honest, I don't really know what that word propitiate means. I just heard Grant say it once and I thought it sounded cool. <laughs> but Simon says, I know they say you're a prophet. But I say you're the fulfillment of the prophecies. I say you are Lord. I say you are more than what people say about you. You are more than the roles that you've played. You are more than the jobs that you did. Friends, I came here today to tell you that Jesus is more than a good teacher. Jesus is more than a moral compass. I can't tell you how many people who say, you know, I just love being in church because then my kids can differentiate right from wrong and they'll get a better understanding of that. And I'm like, you don't get it. That's not what Jesus is in the business of doing. He's not trying to make you a little better. He's trying to breathe life into your lifeless soul. Jesus' plans are so much bigger than your plans. Jesus is so much more than a moral compass. If that's what you think he is, you have really placed the bar at the utter lowest point that you could place it. Jesus is more than a political agenda. Jesus is more than an ideology. He is more than a friend. He is a Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the Savior. And friends, he is the King. This church is called Christ the King. It's not because we thought it sounded cool, because that is who Jesus is. That's what he is doing, what he has done. He is ruling and reigning, and he's on the throne. Friends, Jesus is king, and that might sound like the good news, but that's not the good news. That might sound like the good news, but it's not the good news. The good news isn't that Jesus is king. The good news is that Jesus is a good king. The good news is that Jesus is a loving king. The good news is that Jesus took his power and what he chose to use his power on is to actually reach out towards you. The good news isn't that Jesus has power, it's what Jesus chose to use his power for, which is to lay it down and to be a servant king who spent his life living the life that you couldn't live so that he could die the death that you couldn't die so that you could live and actually be connected to God. He is so much more than you've made him out to be. This week I realized it's not enough to tell you Jesus is king. Not enough to tell you he's powerful. To give you the good news, I've actually got to tell you what kind of king Jesus is. And nowhere is this made more clear to me than in Luke chapter 15. This is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. 
Like these stories actually shaped and changed and transformed and shifted the trajectory of my life. And I keep coming back to them. And they never get old. And so we're going to go back again because it's not enough to say that Jesus is powerful. We need to know his heart. And so Jesus is talking to this group of tax collectors and sinners, and he shares these three stories that really reveal his heart for the lost. And in the first story, Jesus says there's a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. And one of the sheep gets lost and falls behind. And when the shepherd realizes that one of them has gone missing, instead of staying with the 99, instead he goes out into the wilderness looking for the one. The shepherd puts himself in harm's way and searches as long as it takes by day and by night until the sheep is found. And when he finds the sheep, rather than scolding it, the shepherd picks it up and with joy carries it back to safety. And I want to go on record here. You need to understand the roles in play here. This sheep does nothing in this story other than fall behind and get lost. What does the sheep do? It falls behind and gets lost and it stays there. Until the shepherd does all the seeking and all the finding and all the saving and all the work of carrying that sheep all the way back to safety. And as if that's not crazy enough, when the shepherd gets back to the town, he calls his shepherd buddies and throws a party because his sheep that was lost is now found. Yeah, I like looking at the dollars and cents of things. I used to go to school for economics, and one of the things that I realized when I was reading this story is that the shepherd actually probably spent more time and more money throwing the party than the sheep was worth. Like, with all that cash, he could have just bought a new one. But what we see in this story is that the shepherd didn't want a new sheep, he wanted that sheep. And what that means for you is if you feel lost right now, I'm confident of this. There's a good shepherd who's searching high and low and he won't rest until you've been found. His pursuit of you is relentless and he's not interested in another heart. He's interested in yours. He's not counting how much time. He's not counting how much money he is invested in you. Second story is about a woman who has 10 silver coins. One of them gets lost but instead of being content with the nine that she still had, she devoted herself to finding the lost one. She turns her entire house upside down looking for this coin. She looks all day and when it turns to the night, instead of giving up the fight, she fires up the lamp and keeps looking until her coin is found. And I'm sure the listeners were wondering, why does this woman care so deeply about this coin? And the more that I've sat with the story, the more convinced I am that the reason why she looks with such fervor is that she knows that even though the coin was lost, it hadn't lost its value. Even though the coin got lost, it hadn't lost any of its value. She knew that what she was looking for was worth the effort, so she gave herself completely to the search to ensure that that lost coin didn't stay lost. And when she finds it, Scripture says she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost coin. She says, we're having a party. My coin was lost, but now it's found. Bring your families, bring your friends, everyone's invited. It's time to celebrate because I found my coin. And they celebrate the coin, even though it's the woman who did all the searching. And what this means for you is that even if you feel like you've lost your way, 
even if you've made decisions that have made you feel less than, even if people have spoken to you in a way that makes you feel like you've lost your value, you can be confident of this. Just because you've been lost doesn't mean that you've lost an ounce of your value. You have a God, you have a maker, you have a creator who sees every bit of value that there ever was. There's no past version of yourself that God loves any more than he loves you right now, and there's no future one either. You have every bit of value that you've ever had. And there's a search that's ongoing in heaven that won't stop until you've been found. Jesus tells one last story, and it's perhaps the greatest and best-known story Jesus ever told. He says there's a man with two sons, and the youngest son couldn't wait to get out of the house. He had big ideas and big dreams, and he thought that if he could just get his cut of the cash, he was finally going to get to live the life that he always wanted to live. So he asked his father for his share of the inheritance, which in that culture was the equivalent of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because all I want out of this relationship is what you can give me. So the sooner that you can kick the bucket, the sooner that I can actually get what I want, which is your money. And the father didn't have to, but out of love for his son, he divided everything he had. And he cut his son a check, gave him exactly what he wanted. The son took the money, skipped town, and he moved to the city, and he spent it all on wild living. And if you know this story, you know that pretty soon he hits rock bottom. Pretty soon the money dries up, and isn't it interesting when the money dries up, the friends dry up, and all the people that you thought were connected to you just wanted you for the same thing that you wanted your father for, the money. Pretty soon the son's left with nothing and no one, and he's sitting in a field feeding pigs and eating out of the trough with them. But in a moment of clarity, he remembers his dad, and he does the only thing he can think to do. He uses all the energy that he has and he gets up and he starts walking back to his father's house. Not knowing exactly what he was gonna find when he got there or what the consequences would be. All that he knew was that he had drastically overestimated how sweet it was gonna be to do it his own way. And as he's walking home, I love this part, he starts preparing this little speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you make me like one of your hired servants? So we see he isn't even trying to get back in the family. He just knows that my father is a better boss. My father actually treats people with dignity and respect. So even though I know I don't deserve to be a son, at least I can be a hired hand. Because that's sure better than what I've gotten myself into here. As he's walking, he's rehearsing this, rehearsing this speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you make me like one of the hired servants? Friends, he wants it to sound perfect. You can just see it. He's actually trying to present himself they, like with his best foot forward. He's saying, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you make me like one of your hired servants? All the way back, he's rehearsing. He's putting himself back together so that he can be received. Then we get to one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible. It's the gospel wrapped up in a single line. It says, but while he was a still a long way off, his father saw him. Find out the father's been looking. And the father was filled with compassion. And he ran to the son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. Maybe you've been running for such a long time because you didn't know that you had a dad who's been waiting for you at home and he's just been watching the horizon. 
Even as he's being received with kisses, the son is indignant that he needs to recite his speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer to be called your son. Would you make me like one of the hired servants? But it was not found by his father's ears by the time that the servants had caught up to the father. And the father is saying instead, get the ring of authority. Get the robe that represents placement back in the family. Get the sandals for his feet. Fire up the grill. Call the neighbors. Kill the fattened calf. We are going to celebrate tonight because my son who was lost is now found. My son who is dead is now alive. And what I love is that the father doesn't even acknowledge the speech. He doesn't even give it the time of day. Friends, I think this is where you and I can get stuck sometimes. We feel like we've got to have the perfect words to get back into good standing with God. We feel like we've got to tuck ourselves in before we present ourselves to a holy God. But we think we need the right words. And what we find in this story is that that is absolutely and unequivocally not true. God is not interested in you putting yourself together. All that he wants is for you to come home. All that he wants is an opportunity to show you that you've been loved every step of the way, even while you were at your darkest. And this is the picture that we get of Jesus' heart for you. This is the good news. Not that God is powerful, but that this is how God sees you. This is the picture we have to figure out what to do with because wherever you find yourself today, this story is always and forever always will be an invitation for you to come home. It doesn't have to be from the pits. Maybe you've just been in this place of self-reliance. You're trying to be strong. You're trying to do it on your own, and Jesus is saying, stop trying to do what I actually want on my shoulders. Will you come home, and I can show you what it looks like to actually have your priorities straight. Maybe for you, it is the pits, and you've made some decisions that you're like, I don't think that there's any coming back from this. Story shows there is nothing. Here's what I know. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of the Father. It's a simple turn. He's saying, will you come back home today? And maybe for some of you, this is the first time. And maybe you've still got your questions and maybe you're still in the middle of your mess, but you're finally seeing that God's not mad at you. He's madly in love with you. Maybe you're starting to see that God hasn't abandoned you. He has been patiently with grit just looking at the horizon, waiting to see your silhouette so that he can throw off all of the dignity and he'll actually give everything and his authority and he's ready to actually put a robe on your shoulders and say, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I'm so glad you're home. Friends, do you know that that is the heart of God for you? He's been scanning the horizon, waiting to see your silhouette. Jesus says, who do you say I am? Now, I can't speak for you, but I say, that's my God. I say, he's the one who never stopped looking for me. He's the one who never gave up on me. I, I said, he's the God who saw value in me even when I didn't see it in myself. I say he's more than a friend, he's a fortress, he's a firm foundation, and he's the king of kings. If you ask me, I say that he's the God who's able, he's the God who's willing, and I say he's the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and it's never too late.
I say he's a king. But in the words of Jesus, what about you? Because here's what I know. Jesus isn't interested in right now in what I'm saying. He's interested in what you're hearing. He's interested not in you getting behind my story, but forging your own story. He loves you too much to give you a secondhand faith. He wants you to experience it for yourself. He wants you to taste and see his goodness, not just hear about it from some person with a microphone. Jesus isn't interested in what you're hearing. He says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Because what comes into your mind when you think about God's the most important thing about you. So as we close, I'm gonna leave you with this question that only you can answer for yourself. Who do you say Jesus is? Is he powerful? Good. But I hope it's not just power that you see. I hope it's his kindness and his heart. I hope you see the Jesus who says it's never too late for you. I hope you see the Jesus who's scanning the horizon no matter where you find yourself and inviting you again to stand up and start walking towards him. Who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray. Jesus, I can't speak for everyone here, but I say, God, you are a friend. I say you are a fortress. I say you are a priest. I say you are a teacher, but God, I say that you're so much more than that. I say that you're a king. I say that you're a Lord. I say that you're the Messiah. I say that you are the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. You are the God of the big and you're the God of the small. God, you are the God who is holding the cosmos together and you are the God that knows the deepest thoughts that are happening in our heart. And I thank you for that. Thank you that you not only see us, you're interested in what other people think is trivial. God, that you're in this moment, God, that you're in that place where we are up against something and we are just praying for a breakthrough. God, would you be so gracious to give us the courage to say yes to you again or yes to you for the first time because you were a good father and you were worthy. God, I say that you're a savior and a king. Jesus, my prayer is that it wouldn't just be me, God, that when you ask each person in this room in the quietness of this moment, who do you say I am? that they would see you clearly, that they would see your kindness that leads to repentance. They would see your power and your love and that they would move in your direction in Jesus' name, amen. So here's one thing I know about Jesus. He loves asking questions, but he also loves your questions. This week we talked about Jesus is asking you, who do you say I am? But we were thinking about the partner question because we want this to be a conversation. This week, I want you to ask the question, who do you say I am to Jesus? Got me thinking about like in second grade or third grade when I said, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> like, I know your savior, I know your king, but what does that mean for me? I think that if you wrestle with that, you're gonna get to this place where you begin to see all that God's done for you. See the doors that have been opened. See where he's been fighting your battles. See where he's called you righteous, even though you see broken. I think you're going to see that he calls you son and he calls you daughter. 
And when we get to that place where we see all that God's done, I can't think of another thing to do other than just to praise him and say, thank you. I don't understand all of it. I don't see the value you see in me, but God, I'm going with you. I'm throwing my lot in with you. And so that's what we're going to do. We're actually going to respond to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Will you actually stand with me? And as we close, we're going to sing to the God who fights our battles. And we're going to actually celebrate the story of Jesus' victory. And we're going to say, all hail King Jesus. All hail the Lord of heavens and earth. So let's worship together.